Welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads. Ten little soldier boys went out to dine. One choked his little self, and then were nine. Nine little soldier boys sat up very late. One overslept himself, and then there were eight. Eight little soldier boys traveling in Devon. One said he'd stay there, and then there were seven. Seven little soldier boys chopping up sticks. One chopped himself in halves, and then there were six. Six little soldier boys playing with a hive. A bumblebee stung one, and then there were five. Five little soldier boys going in for law. One got into chancery, and then there were four. Four little soldier boys going out to sea. A red herring swallowed one, and then there were three. Three little soldier boys walking in the zoo. A big bear hugged one, and then there were two. Two little soldier boys playing with a gun. One shot the other, and then there was one. One little soldier boy left all alone. He went out and hanged himself, and then there were none. Okay, so I'm I'm more confused now because that is not super like the poem that I have. Two little soldier in... boys is not the same as what you read and what is in my version of the book. Also, this is a really stellar entry <laughs> entryway into this episode <laughs> that we're doing. <laughs> I had such a such a more dramatic idea where that would go. <laughs> Um, so, but... yeah, so two little soldier boys sitting in the sun, mm-hmm. one got frizzled up, and then there were none, is more like the version that I have. I have, but well, and then, and then there was one, I, but I have the sun and frizzled up as well in my version. Okay. There, there are several different versions of this <laughs> poem, uh, at least a couple of which are actually discussed within the text. But the text itself, in which this poem serves as just the lockstep organization for how it all flows through, is Agatha Christie's utter classic, and then there were none. Yes. As we've, as we've discussed in prior weeks, we got on one hell of a mystery kick. We were so excited to explore what modern mystery had to offer through the Agatha Awards, and then had decidedly more mixed views on what was actually on, on offer. Disappointed, we decided <laughs> to... You know, there were hopes, and I think more than anything, we discovered that mystery short stories may not be the best thing for us. At least in the, at least what the Agatha Awards were coming to offer. So we yes. decided... Working off the name of the awards themselves to return to the Grand Dame herself and one of her most illustrious works, and there were none. Published back in 1939, this is one of her most famous works and one that she universally describes as one of the most difficult to write. And it has been adapted, it has been reworked, it has t- its title has been changed from where it originally started. But possibly it, for good reasons? Uh, possibly for good reasons. Even the poem itself, which was originally based on a menstrual poem that existed at the time, has now been reworked in the story itself to fit more modern sensibilities. Mm-hmm. It is interesting, but, too, in thinking about um, how this book was one of the most difficult for Christy to write. Her author's note at the beginning is really interesting in terms of this was really just a puzzle for herself. Can I make mm-hmm. this work? That she started with an idea and then she worked from there, trying to make all the pieces linked together in a way that was believable and offered a bit of fairness to her reader. I'll be curious to hear y'all's views, but in my mind, she succeeded admirably. But before we get into the meat of the story, Sarah, do you have a drink pairing for us to enjoy as we get through it? I do. I wanted to give us um, a little more time with one of our characters who exits stage left very quickly in this in this story. <laughs> um, and in honor of Tony Marston, I am uh, drinking a gin and ginger, which is in fact what he stops off for in his fast car on his way to the docks to go over to... <laughs> Uh, to go over to the island. Um, And after racing around Dr. Armstrong, he decides that he is going to to stop in a roadside bar and have a gin and ginger. And that is, in fact, what I am drinking now. And 
you know, except for the that one time that I think I just poured Sambuca into a glass and drank it. This is one of the simplest cocktails that I have made. <laughs> um, it is just a, a shot of gin, a little bit of lime juice. I'm using lemon juice because it's what I had. And it's topped off with ginger beer. It's really the gin version of a Moscow Mule. And mm-hmm. um, it's really, it's, uh, it's delightful. Uh, did you opt to not include the optional potassium cyanide? Oh, that's in the that's in the second glass. <laughs> oh, yes. I understand now. <laughs> You've got to get a little loosened up first, and then you coat <laughs> the already wetted glass with the potassium ah, cyanide. Yeah. It causes You've, less suspicion that way. You've done this before. I understand now. <laughs> um, well, moving from that wonderful drink recommendation, I'm glad you enjoyed this one. It's been a more mixed bag over time. Yes. Um, let's did you drink- actually get ginger ale, or did you get did you get ginger beer or ginger I ale? I got the ginger beer. Is it nice and spicy? Yes. yes. Okay. It, no, it's it's very good. It's certainly much better than a in a kind of sweet ginger ale would have been. It's got the got the little kick the from kick. the ginger beer. Yeah. Well, as we have been unable to do now for several weeks, I feel that we have to go into one star reviews, which feels kind of sacrilegious when it comes to this true classic of English literature. But Sarah, you started a bit of a foray into this and had an interesting reaction. I did. I went to Goodreads, as one does when looking for one-star reviews that are not Amazon one-star reviews, which gets a little tricky as you go through them. Uh, And I promptly saw no one-star reviews and therefore did not prepare this segment. However, it seems that Goodreads might have been lying to me or that I had my blinders on for Agatha Christie. You all, however, I believe have found some one-star reviews. Upon searching through this, Sarah, as you noted, the Goodreads score for this is off the charts. At a 4.26 is probably one of the highest that you can find. To get above a 4, if you have any number of reviews at all, is really something special in and of itself. Yep. With 892,982 ratings, (laughs) there's been a few people that have offered opinions on this, and... 443,682 of them have been five-star. So, it is widely loved. However, there are still 14,500 or so one-star reviews. And BJ and I have a few select ones that we'd like to discuss with the group. BJ, do you have one to start us off? Um, I don't now because it <laughs> reordered them because I reloaded the page. Uh, hold on a second. I, so... I, I was seriously judging somebody who was just like, I figured out the entire thing from the first page and um, like it didn't make any sense. Um, that feels like oh, someone who could have been there, there on this I don't know. Definitely our... wasn't a fan of the book. I had the concept all figured out pretty much right from the beginning. Just suspected the wrong person. The book got completely boring way too often. They didn't spell too correctly. I wasn't able to keep up to keep most of the characters straight a majority of the time kept confusing who was who this book just wasn't for me and their picture on goodreads is like the puppy filter from instagram or whatever oh no and i'm judging them hardcore the book might not have been for you then (laughs) of of all of the criticism to make though the i didn't know who was speaking is the weirdest one to do with this book because agatha christie is almost aggressive about telling you this person said this thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I like confusing some characters. Like if you don't have something fixed in your head, sure. There are a couple of that, those kind of characters who die in the middle of the book that get a little confused in my head, especially because was it Davis who's Lombard? What? There's one mm-hmm. character who is actually someone else. 
it, it was uh, da- it was uh, Davis was actually blonde. Well, yes, that's right. Yeah. So the other thing is like I'm I'm sort of curious like how like different versions do things because like there's the like the intro stuff that 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 I get in my copy is like all of the people like there are ten house guests they're all gonna die and it's a who done it here's the cast of characters like I. <laughs> that you got the concept from the very beginning is well well yes like it it basically tells you at the very beginning what's going to happen uh, anyway i would also po- so, i would also suggest that like and i do want to get to more of these one star reviews but like one and i i know we've talked in past episodes about kind of like what a cozy mystery is and all of that um mm-hmm. but like the thing about them is not what the concept or the setup is like that is usually if not known in advance is known very quickly it's how did mm-hmm. you it's the mystery of how you got there mm-hmm. it's the mystery of how you got there and how the discovery of it unfolds yes so this um, is a very strange criticism to lobby at this book in the first place i've got one here and i'm betting you guys can can pretty can kind of guess where this person went wrong uh the biggest mystery I was left after reading this book was, why did I waste my time reading this book? I had high expectations when I started reading this book. I don't normally read mysteries, but I had read that this one is considered one of the best mystery novels ever, so I decided to give it a try. The book is about ten people who go to an island and one by one are murdered. The main problem I had with this book is, was that the reader is never given any answers. I knew just as much after I read the book as I knew before I read the book. Who invited them to the island? I do not know. Who was the murderer? I do not know. Why is this considered one of the best mystery novels ever? I do not know. Where did this person go wrong? Someone has been taught never to read the forewords or the afterwords or the epilogues. (laughs) There you go. I I think this person's problems could have been solved by reading the next, honestly, 30 pages of the epilogue of this book. It's like a fifth of the book, guys. Um, here's a great one. So about three pages in, I happened to Google this book and inadvertently fell into an internet hole where I learned how fucking racist the original publication of this book was. I can't read this book without thinking about it the whole time. Even if it wasn't racist, the book just wasn't for me. I was bored by it. All right. Credit where it is due. The original title of this book is kind of racist as hell. Mm -hmm. It was written in 1939 to an English audience primarily, where apparently, in 1939 England, that word didn't have the same connotations that it did across the pond. So, but it's also based on a figure of speech, as far as I understand, which basically is some facts of considerable importance that are not disclosed, something suspicious or wrong, with the the N-word in the woodpile. Mm-hmm. And yes. it, it, it is was used in the Democratic Party, which was the opposite party back in the day, basically lambasting Abraham Lincoln about slavery and those issues. And so... And Agatha Christie was using an actual existing menstrual poem that was regularly told to children because this was a weirder age. Um, (laughs) But it's fun when you go to the original title, which everybody can Google it, we're not going to say it. Uh, Immediately when she brought the book over to America... Her American publishers immediately told her, you can't call it this. Yeah. Sorry. Even in the racist world of 1939 United States, we're not doing that. Let's call it, and then there were none. Doesn't that sound better? Yes. And 
it basically stuck thereafter in the American and most of the rest of the world copies. However, from my Googling, the British original British name stuck around in at least several copies through the 80s, which is so British. <laughs> um, it's also interesting that the poem changed more than once. Mm-hmm. At, least, at least twice now since of words. Yes. It started out in polite name for black people. It moved to, and this is the original version I read, Ten Little Indians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I still have the original playbill that I have for. And then more recently, it has now become, at least the version I read, uh, Ten Little Soldier Boys. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, is, so, which is very purposefully the version of the poem we read at the beginning of this podcast. Yes. Um, I assume it also changed the name of, like, was the name of the island, what was yes. the original name of the yes, island? Yes, it was. Yeah. It was. It was okay. that it was that island. Then it became Indian Island in, in the middle version, and then now Soldier Island. Now it's Soldier Island. Yes. As so it we is have as well changes. in the in the TV adaptations that have like followed each of those iterations, they have changed with them as well. Yeah, gotcha. that, that, that makes sense. And, uh, and it, it changes some some of the things that they say. Um, Spencer, as you did comment before we we started recording. Um, there are some in-jokes in the story that kind of land a little bit flat now because they don't have that original title, but it doesn't matter that much. Mm-hmm. If, in, if anything, using Soldier Island now really fits for the kind of period piece adaptations that often do for it. Because mm-hmm. this story is set in a very much on the end of the, of the, of the, of the uh, mid-war era, mm-hmm. on the mm-hmm. very much the eve of World War II. So in some ways having it named you know, Soldier Island, having soldier connotations, particularly with several characters with military backgrounds, I think almost kind of works well. Yeah, I yeah. I didn't really think about it a whole lot when reading when reading the book. And I will say that uh, the original version that I read was Ten Little Indians and Indian Island. But this version, mm-hmm. I, I bought the new Kindle version and it is Soldier Island. I didn't really think about it much when I was reading it. Um, but I've, I've started but not finished the 2015 adaptation. And they also follow the convention of, of calling it Soldier Island and Ten Little Soldier Boys. And it feels, honestly, it feels right. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I don't know. I think it's a really, I think it is an, an expedient change in a lot of ways. But I also think it's a, it's a smart change. Yeah, right. I mean, there's no reason not to have, like, little tin soldiers and, you know, that works just as well. Yeah. And, and Agatha Christie approved the original adaptations within her own life, and it seems that her estate has followed a similar trend mm-hmm. of where the text should be enjoyed by people whatever era they're in. If minor changes need to be made to make it palpable and not directly racist, happy to accommodate. Sure. Um, and if you want to look up any surrounding poem that's associated with this, you can look up the Roud Folk Song Index, number 12976, <laughs> in the Roud Folk Song catalog and get all of the little different things that are associated with this rhyme and piece of music um and if you want to go down a little wikipedia hole there is a library in the uk that has all basically uk and u.s uh folk songs um of various types and uh Basically, some dude just started assigning numbers to them, <laughs> and bas- for the most part, there's no rhyme or reason other than older ones are lower numbers, mostly because you start with the ones that everybody knows. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and there, there is some overlap between the round numbers and the list of child ballads, which is not 
ballads for children, but by Francis James Child. <laughs> as well as... Boy, BJ, you needed more to do today. Numbers. I don't know. <laughs> the Laws numbers are George Malcolm Laws. Oh my god. Returning to one-star Spencer. reviews briefly. Uh, <laughs> there are two overarching criticisms I see a lot. Beyond a lot of people saying this, that the work just wasn't for them, which... You can't criticize that. If you don't if you don't appreciate a mystery, if you don't appreciate a thriller, if it's not your genre, what can you say? It's not for I, you. I, I can judge I it. Can I can't criti- criticize it, but I can judge I it. You yes. can, I think I, you can very much criticize it when people say they couldn't get into it or, you know, something like that. It just wasn't for them because if they're... What are they reading that they couldn't get into it and they have a tiny novella? Like... Are you actually reading or are you like playing on your phone with a book in front of you or like watching an adaptation? Because like reading requires a little bit more like it's if if you hate the prose, sure. Mm-hmm. But but if the story isn't enrapturing you, I, I read this much. I read more than this in The Fellowship of the Ring and I knew it wasn't for me because nothing happened. You can get a bit farther where nothing happens till you can say that nothing happens. Two other main points of criticism I see quite a bit, though. Um, one is many people were put off uh, uh, with respect to racism and misogyny in the text. Sure. And yeah. I think it is perfectly fair to say that several characters, particularly one character, are an even mix of racist and misogynist in their own ways. Whether the text itself is, I think, is something that we can much more heavily debate. Yes, I think that's uh, a great your, point. Did your versions include uh, some slapping? Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, okay. I will also say that uh, the person in I'm getting have recently started the adaptation and it's really good and I'm very excited about it. Um, but that moment gets assigned to the the slap e the slapped is a male character, not Vera. Vera does the slapping. Interesting. Vera is a fascinating character of fun, fun discussing because she is viewed through a, many times her misogynistic lens and yet finds so many ways to get around that or use that to her advantage mm-hmm. and makes for an utterly fascinating character and a fun commentary on those kind of stereotypes within the text. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a worthwhile criticism to note because it's fun to discuss, but I don't necessarily feel that it's personally fair to the actual text itself. Characters can be racist or sexist. It doesn't necessarily mean the work itself is. Right. Another one I see quite a bit, very common, is that it is an unfair mystery. That you couldn't see it coming, that you couldn't predict what was going to occur. I, having now read this a few times, find that utter hogwash. But I'm curious of, of y'all's views. I think, I think that there is some... Uh, I think that there's something to be said for that, that... Um, there are sort of things that you had to, that would be hard to get, uh, or, or almost impossible because they sort of happened out of the room and you don't have evidence. But I think that there, I don't think it's a completely fair mystery, but I think it is a much fairer mystery than many more modern mysteries. Mm -hmm. I think that the concept of a fair mystery, um, is, is, was more held up previously than it is now i think that they're like i don't know with all the detective shows that that we have and and sort of all of those other things where sometimes you the audience sees the crime happen Mm -hmm. that's what people expect 
a fair mystery to be rather than like you have to piece stuff together so i'm i'm on the fence with this one yeah because it is so i I mean two different things one i'm thinking about the sort of tana french novel that we read um yeah where like legitimately if i'm remembering correctly and i could be correct me if i'm wrong um but there were like actually things that you couldn't have known as a reader in that mystery right um that were integral to the whodunit Mm -hmm. that was almost more in the way that was solved that was almost more of a thriller because there was this suspenseful kind of like what is going to come of this confrontation as opposed to like i have pieced together the mystery um Mm -hmm. but to the point about a a fair mystery to my mind you know a fair mystery is one where there are clues that would lead you to um to the whodunit but at the same time like it is it is perfectly okay if you couldn't have necessarily gotten there before the end of the mystery right it's it's really if you get there you get the explanation and you go oh yes mm-hmm. so i think I think that's reasonable, I guess, to my mind and, and my concept of it is that the person solving the mystery, which is usually how these come about, mm-hmm. is not is only working off the same clues that you have. And so sometimes like things are coming together different, like mm-hmm. they put things together mm-hmm. a little mm-hmm. bit differently, mm-hmm. but it's not that they're taking things from off screen or, or off that they don't that isn't in the text for for their solving of of the murder. Yes. And so because we don't have that going on here, I think it's a little bit harder to say whether it's fair or not. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um so you know, me, take that as it will. Let me, let me speak where I'm coming from where I, when I say it's fair then. Um Agatha Christie clearly it seems agonized over making this fair. That she that she seems like she was very much built around the idea that there needed to be hints, there needed to be foreshadowing, which is made all the harder with this story because so different than odd adaptations of the plays, we spend half the text in each character's head, including yeah. mm-hmm. our murderers. Mm-hmm. On the surface, you can read a lot of what Wargrave's, Wargrave's thoughts are kind of just as they are, that some of them kind of strike you as a little bit weird, but they don't necessarily give you a clear picture of a murderer, necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it seems like Agatha Christie was intentionally trying to walk that fine line. Of where you're literally in a murderer's head. If you're getting a full and complete picture of what he's thinking, the game's given up. Mm-hmm. You, the reader knows from the very beginning. Yeah. And so she walked a fine line of where a lot of, his, a lot of what we get out of him could be interpreted in different ways. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are some that are downright sadistic, I mean, one of the moments when Wargrave's alone in his room, he actually, when he's thinking back about Seton, the guy he sent to the gallows, he gleefully, for a moment when he's alone, just glories in the fact that he cooked his goose. Mm -hmm. And he's the only character that is gleeful about what he did. And that happened. And then there's... Yeah, so I'd say gleeful, but... um, uh, What's her name? Uh, Brent. She she is utterly removed. She's She's... A mix between righteous and removed mm-hmm. from it. Yes, that it's she didn't do it. Yes, she did 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 nothing. It was <laughs> that own person's sin. Yes, and and even so, it was the right thing to happen basically anyway. And yes. So, mm-hmm. but and what's interesting is that every she admits that openly, and yes. everyone focuses on her for the rest of the damn text. Yes, for long, yeah. as long as she's alive. Mm-hmm. Wargrave, we only hear it from him, but he says it. 
And then there's several other lines of when someone else questions the experience that Wargrave hones in on with lines like, oh, you think it's a joke, do you? Almost like he's offended that somebody was second-guessing what he's engaged in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we, we get several moments like that that could be interpreted different ways that seem a bit odd. We then get Wargrave's death, which would seemingly clearly indicate that he didn't do it. Um, <laughs> As it was intended to do, yes. But yeah. the text takes pains, and the poem takes pains to say that the one that immediately comes afterwards is a red herring mm-hmm. in some ways, mm-hmm. giving you that yeah. thought. And then we get war- several moments like that, that kind of explanation. Then we get Wargrave's epilogue. Yes. Where it feels very much like Agatha Christie is talking to the reader of, well, I had thoughts that maybe the police could see through this. Option number one, option number two, <laughs> option number three. In case you mm-hmm. missed the, dun, 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 the clues that I was leaving, here they are laid right. out for you. And so I will say that the explanation for why they didn't hear the shot, like, rang hollow but like i didn't know if that's because agatha christie had never heard a gun (laughs) or because like there there was that foul play going on like when i first like read this Mm -hmm. and because Mm. there's a running joke in uh, archer about like no one deals with how loud guns are ever in like any media yeah um and so and it's helped in that moment. Notably in the stage play, a gunshot is heard on stage. A gunshot, mm. a gun is actually fired because the audience wouldn't believe it otherwise. Yeah. In in the actual short story novella, it's helped there that Armstrong's telling them it happened and Armstrong's in on it. Right. Yes. Is that the fact they've got a doctor saying he was shot, he is dead. Everyone then fills in the blanks to make that work. Even right. So... Yeah. It's one of those things where I, I give full credit to people. I did not see the plot thread when I, when I first read this. Um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I think it'd be very hard to do so because you're so much in the moment. She spends so much time getting you in the experience of each individual character that you get kind of lost and confused and threatened with them. Mm-hmm. But in retrospect, now knowing who did it, to me, it is now blatantly fucking obvious. Well, But I don't mean just in the fact that I know, but reading through right. each of Wargrave's lines... Mm-hmm. I now see them with the malevolence that he actually was thinking. And I now see them... That, that's, that sort of trial that he starts holding yes. relatively early right. when the deaths start happening. Once you know, it's sort of like, oh, this is, this oh, is this just is who you are. Got, right, got right. it. He's, and he's giving them each an opportunity to confess. Yes. He's, putting them, he's putting each in their own experiences on trial. He's inviting their testimony. Mm-hmm. He is serving as the high judge and executioner here upon them mm-hmm. and is making very little effort to hide it. It's just neither they or the reader can see him as anything other than the hunched, turtle-like old man that he is. Mm-hmm. They, they don't see the potential malevolence, the potential threat behind him until it is far too late. Um, and so two things with that. One... Like, I was thrown off initially when he's basically dealing with his own crime. And he's like, why would they say that? Like, I was perfectly right. And it's just like, well, if he did the record, then... And, and, like, and, and that's one of the things that's so careful about the way she writes it, of where a lot of it yeah. comes across as, well, he's actually pondering, why did I get this letter from this woman? Mm-hmm. Why, why are these people second-guessing me of this crime? But then when you read it in retrospect, it's his, well... This woman works perfectly because she's overseas and nobody can second guess it. He's almost just being really smug with himself that he picked the perfect person to do this. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when he's talking about his crime, he's analyzing how other people, and they're responding to it, 
because he spends half the damn text manipulating the psychology to his what he describes at the end as kind of an act of hypnosis to wrap up the to wrap up these murders. Yes. Um, the the court of chancery was sort of an insane thing, but it seems like they had like whimsical like like the whims of the court was was uh, the end all and be all basically. Oh yeah. Uh, and and so it's entertaining that that was in the poem and that's uh number four so yeah, yeah. I, I would note from a legal standpoint I, a bit about english law that has changed from then to now the judge does not deliver a summation to advise the jury about <laughs> what they should do now that, that does seem a, a little <laughs> crazy to a sort of modern reader no, we don't get that. In fact, if a judge tried to do that, it would be overturned on appeal. The jury is meant to have an independent authority, not guided in that manner. Um, but yeah, it's fun to see. But I, I think one of the best ways we can go through our structure of discussing the story is not really through a plot recap, but characters. Because the text mm-hmm. just spends so much time in what the characters are thinking and how the characters are reacting. And truly, when the characters are left alone to their thoughts. So maybe so, um, we can go back through the poem one by one and go through the characters in that order. And, and also maybe talk a little bit about the judgments that, that the judge has on... We need to discuss that. <laughs> yeah. A, a key detail is that when Wargrave is delivering... When, I love the two epilogue sections of this story. Yeah. I adore yeah. when the police are baffled because it's so delightfully spelled out that they've got all the information, they've got all the details, and it makes no goddamn sense. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, the I, police I, are the reader stand-in in this moment because, like, yes. we're completely baffled. <laughs> they ha- they seem to, like, when they are running through the accounts that they have been left through various journals, like, they have essentially the same information that we do, except they haven't particularly been in people's heads. But they know everything right. we know, and they have no idea. <laughs> and no. It's, made, it's made even harder for them because Wargrave cleaned up a little bit yes. afterwards. Yes. That mm-hmm. he perp- he purposely moved Vera's chair, which is just mo- that's such a that is such a brilliant and shocking detail in that first yes. of the epilogues yes. because you don't at the end of the story proper it is possible not I don't know that people really yeah. believe it but it is possible that Vera was the murderer and then is killing herself right right and then and- it, that is swept out from under you uh in the first of the epilogues and, and it's mm-hmm. so it's so brilliantly caught in the details yes. too of where you could imagine it would be the details wouldn't work but so many stories don't fit perfectly together sure. as a puzzle so many ones have these kind of just lost threads that don't make sense and we're so used to just ignoring them and moving on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to have this like oh well that's kind of weird i don't know if that would work that she did it and then they're just recounting the evidence and they end with and then she was just hung. She was hung alone in a room with no chair around her. Yeah. And then suddenly realize, oh, there's something else at play here. I don't understand yes. yet. Yes. Yes. It's a one. It's a wonderful moment. So that chapter is just great. And then Wargrave's summation, effectively mm-hmm. at the end of the story, his final pronouncement from the bench, is just delightful. Just both from finally understanding his character, finally having every piece fit together, but just the smug glee that he's doing in recounting this. He's so proud of himself. And mm-hmm. he even expresses that, that I wanted this to be a perfect mystery. I wanted it to be impossible to solve. Mm-hmm. But I'm but. human, and I want recognition, because <laughs> I did so good and say that I did good, please. Listen, this was like the moment that I most identified with War Graves throughout the whole thing. <laughs> it, 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 I, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful end of the story and it feels so much like Agatha Christie speaking to the reader there at the end of where I yep. worked so hard painting this 
that I can't end it on that note. I want you to acknowledge that, yes, I linked everything <laughs> together. All the pieces are there. But one of the things that Wargrave says there at the end is that he very purposely killed them in order that he felt was their level of guilt. That the more guilty you were, the longer you were going to wait because it was going to end up being more torturous and more suffering. Right. Except Which, for him or including him? Uh, it seems like he picked himself just due to the, ch- just due to the Chancery reference. <laughs> but he, he didn't have a choice there. It was his moment. They gave him his call. Um, particularly since he did not view himself as guilty. And thought the fact that he wasn't guilty would be a, a hint to the police that he was, ironically, the murderer. And yet, literally everyone in the room believed that he was guilty of what he claimed he was guilty of. And yeah. I, would, I would note, though, that under that logic, he did actually kill himself last. Yes. Right, did. and that's what I was saying. Yes. Like, he yes. killed himself, so it's like a weird... Now I understand. Yes. Now I understand. Yeah. Um, um, so, are we ready well, to go through our characters? Please. Uh... So let's start. I'm going to get back to the poem so that we can go through. Um, So we start with ten little soldier boys went out to dine. One choked his little self, and then there were nine. So we start with Tony Marston. Who we do. Who is honestly one of the more physically described characters, particularly for the early part of this story. Because he's pretty. Every (laughs) single time this man is described, it is in just beatific, deity-like terms. Agatha Christie likes an attractive... 20-something male character. Oh, so you let so, be very clear. <laughs> my question is, is there a version in which Mars, Marston is played by James Marston? <laughs> Agatha Christie literally describes him as a Nordic god like three times in this text, and he's yeah. not around long. Of where, When he arrives in his brand new car, just roaring in, it is like the Valkyries are escorting him to the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, Everything about him is physicality. Everything about him is appearance, and that fits his character. That this is the guy that wines and dines with movie stars. This is the guy that practically is a movie star himself, at least in terms of his social work. And there's nothing beneath the surface. He is just a facade of pretty, and then with a certain... And with a veneer of brattiness underneath, like that's... Yes. Yeah. And I think the thing that's the thing that was interesting is that factors into Wargrave's judgment is his profound self-absorption. Yeah. Is that... When everybody's recounting their crimes, they're either hiding details or there's a certain amount of guilt or they're going through a certain thought process. We never get the slightest thought from Marston in his head about these kids, despite the fact we spend a little bit of time in his head. And he openly admits the crime with the description of it was difficult for him. It was a burden on him that he ran those two kids over. So uh, was affluenza described before this (laughs) book? It it is embodied in this person. I mean, the initial events we get of him are him driving poor uh, the poor Dr. Armstrong into a ditch Mm -hmm. as he's driving down the road. And then this description of he's disappointed that this party's not going to have more movie stars there. And then and then his description of his crime that, yeah, he was running down the road. and He was getting some really good speed. and It was a lot of fun. And these two kids ran in front of his damn car. Oh, well. Those, what are you supposed to do? I like um, the England on, doesn't know anything about roads. The continent knows and about on that roads. Note, <laughs> I will say that apparently the Isle of Man still does not have uh, speed limits. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> well, our, our Judge Wargrave pronounces him as the least guilty of them because he essentially lacks the capacity to have guilt mm-hmm. or to really analyze himself and have any degree of regret. That he is essentially 
fundamentally amoral, and so you can't really judge him on a moral scale. Which is a weird way to, like, he's a sociopath, so, meh, what can you do? I know, is he a sociopath, though, or is he just careless? I, 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 I think Wargrave views him as a sociopath. I don't. I view him as just, I don't view being profoundly self-absorbed as necessarily a trait of soci- uh, being a sociopath. It, it factors in, but in his case, he's just, I, I agree with your description of careless. He's just, he only, he only cares about the immediate gratification, and so he acknowledges that that was not necessarily a good thing to do. Uh, actually, now, now I'm starting to prove a case for sociopathy here. I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> I mean, I that, that's sort of more... where it's just like, it wasn't a good thing to do, clearly, because he lost his license briefly. Um, yeah. But... I don't view him as amoral. I just view him as selfish, and I view those as separate things. I think I think that's right. Although I'm not sure that we ever get an instant of him instance of him having morals. I think he offers to pour somebody a drink. That was a nice gesture. There you go. Okay. I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to use that as enough to hang it. Okay. Fair, fair enough, enough Wargrimes. <laughs> we honestly... Um... He's probably the character we we honestly get the least in the head of, which I think is appropriate given that there's probably not much going on there. <laughs> Why spend the time? <laughs> Crickets. Um, so yeah, he's a character that is, he has a hell of an image, but no staying power. And I think that embodies just what he represents in the story. His his biggest contribution was giving me my drink for this evening. <laughs> that is yes. good enough which for me. Which is a very, very useful one. Yes. I yeah. wonder if this was, was, this was a little bit of Agatha Christie... Uh, throwing some shade on like flappers and such of around that era because yeah. it's just like you guys are guilty but you're too useless to be like that much of a problem yeah and that starts to look particularly self-absorbed in the lead up to world war ii mm-hmm. i like how she uses his image though as a key point in adding mystery to the story for a little bit longer mm-hmm. of where mm-hmm. People that originally when he poisons, when we, you know, he's poisoned on potassium cyanide from his drink, everyone is willing to default to the notion to start that he committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Because what else could it be? Mm-hmm. But then we get the building doubt with respect to it of, but he in particular wouldn't. Yes. Anybody, anybody else here? Maybe. Sure. Possibly. But he wouldn't. He wouldn't carry that amount of guilt or doubt or depression. He only lives in the moment. He only lives from one pleasure to the next. Why would that guy commit suicide? Mm-hmm. So I like how she uses that kind of just utterly vapid facade of a person to start it off. Because it just b- starts the build of this just paranoid tension that drives the story and how the characters go through it. And and that's the, the, the right-hand man doing it. It's Armstrong that's strong-arming this explanation in, basically, um, who was instrumental in in having this done. Unless anyone else has to say there, Sarah, would you continue with our poem I and will. our next character? So, nine little soldier boys sat up very late. One overslept himself, and then there were eight. So, Mrs. So Rogers. Mrs. Rogers. Yes, Mrs. Rogers. Who we also don't get very much about, except that she's a very good cook. Right. Um, <laughs> um, I, I find it very fitting for this era and this society that the only characters, the characters we spend probably the least time with are the servants. The help, yes. Yeah. We get uh, a little bit from Rogers. We get a little <laughs> bit briefly in his head. We do. We, Mrs. Rogers is the only character we never see inside of her head in the story, mm-hmm. I think. Also, I, I wonder if part of the reason that things sort of speed up towards the end is because they don't have anybody to cook for them. <laughs> They're eating and, tongue. They're tired okay, of it. Okay, so one of the things tongue. that was like incredible to me in this story... 
which I'm sure actually would have happened in this time period, is that like even as these deaths start to occur and it becomes clear that they are murders, the upstairs-downstairs boundaries must continue to be upheld. Yes. Well, no, no, no. We have a conversation about it. Well, since there is an extra room downstairs, yes. would you be Well, but Rogers so is still serving them. This is not... In the smallest I, room. I, I love two things there. I love that Rogers feels the need to ask, hey, would you let me sleep in some other room rather than next to my dead wife? He feels he needs permission to ask that question. Uh. Is interesting. And then, as they know murders is happening, as his wife is the second dead body on the floor, Rogers keeps making He's them food. Still preparing lunch. <laughs> and, and also, after two poisonings, presumably. They're still eating whatever's put in front of them. He's the help. It couldn't be. No one, I don't think anyone at any point in the story actually suspects Rogers did it. I don't think. Do well, even and for God a moment, knows they're held up in it. So there you go. I mean, they're right. But in Bloor, for example, we're going to get to him in a second. He thinks everybody did it at some point or another in this story. That's true. He accuses everyone to their face. Never even thinks it could be Rogers. I mean, pretty much their explanation is. He's too dumb to have tried to figure any of this out, yeah. so it's fine. Yeah, yeah, that is literally what they do to say, okay, who could it be? Could be them, could be them. Rogers? Nap, he's help. Help wouldn't do it. Too stupid. Moving on. Um, but but m- Mrs. Mrs. Rogers. M- Mrs. Rogers has a very interesting initial impression that we get from Vera of her, mm-hmm. of where she seems the cl- the one that is probably bearing the most guilt, possibly at the start of the story, is one way of interpreting it. Yes. Where Vera sees her as basically almost like a ghost of a person. That she's yeah. barely there. You can almost see through her. She's just this white sheet of a woman that a stiff breeze could blow down. And in retrospect, several of the characters ponder, and part of what we see of her reaction, she's probably the mo- most of any of these characters, the one that is what she did, if assuming she did it, is the most still with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wargrave suspects that, that she was bullied into it by her husband, maybe didn't even want to be involved in it. Which is why she dies second, as opposed to yes. where her husband dies. Right. Right. Well, her husband did other things. Her husband was probably assumed by Wargrave to have actively instigated it and played the key role in covering it up with going through the storm and everything else. Yes. Yeah. Um, but Mrs. Rogers has the most immediate reaction of where, when they play the tape, the famous gramophone record that every adaptation loves to depict in different ways... Mm-hmm. Everybody else just looks confused or is indignant. Mrs. Rogers collapses She's into down. a puddle of a person. Mm-hmm. She yeah. is down and out. She, and we get some ammonia smelling salts. Well, we, do we, we, we get a, we get brandy. We, we, Bran- oh yeah, brandy, that's right. I love the frequent use of brandy in this story as a cure-all. It's but, really brought out for everything. It's just, person had a rough moment, here's your brandy. Person just fainted, brandy. Person, person, person just screamed because she thought she was about to be choked to death up in upstairs room. Get her, put, force her head between her knees and then get her brandy. I mean, check the seal all, and get her brandy. Old yes. practices that we should bring back. I feel like brandy, brandy. A, as a cure-all like isn't a bad one. Listen, I I am in favor of this as a thing. I might have more fits if I got brandy at the end of that. <laughs> If y'all want to start a thing of we just at every corner of a house have a little crystal of brandy just available for when people have an emotional episode, I'm down. I can start this right now. As long as I don't have to start wearing corsets to bring on these sort of attacks, that would be great. Thank you. You you can do it without the corsets. You can deal with the binding. You're fine. Perfect. Um, I think I got rid of most of 
the crystal containers that I had for spirits. Maybe I'll have to reinvest. I have several. We can dig them out. <laughs> Start putting them about the place. This is the brandy corner. Well, I'm so, I don't think there's much more to say about Mrs. Rogers because she effectively deserves as a prop for the rest of the story that they kind of check on to make sure the body's still there. I will say one interesting thing in the adaptation that I'm watching um, is that they have made her... She's not completely blind, but she might be, like, blind in one eye. And it's a question for a while as to whether, like, her difficulties with her sight have come on from a shock, from guilt, or mm. from some sort of physical trauma. And what also, comes out in the story is that, in, in some of the flashbacks, is that she walked in on her husband. They actually change how they murdered the their employer instead of withholding mm -hmm. the medicine that she needed because that does not play super well on screen. Um, Mr. Rogers smothered her with a pillow. Mrs. Rogers wasn't even there, walked in, freaked out as we have seen her do in this story. And uh, Mr. Rogers essentially attacks her, causing uh, her blindness. That, that's interesting. Yeah. That, that's that, that's also fun from a both proverbial and a, biz, a biblical standpoint because she is quite she is quite physically turning a blind eye to his crimes. Yes, mm -hmm. and yes. from a proverbial standpoint, rather than you know judge him, she has smote her own eye rather than cast the beam out of his. Mm -hmm. That that is it. I, that, that's a fun choice. I like that. Mm -hmm. um, well, are, oh, are we free to move on? Yes. Then? Let me bring us to the next one. Eight little soldier boys traveling in Devon. One said he'd stay there, and then there were seven. The gen and this is, depends on what adaptation you have. He's either General MacArthur or Mackenzie. Uh, apparently, it was changed for a period there when General MacArthur became really famous after World War II. <laughs> they didn't want it to be MacArthur. <laughs> uh, no, I was say, no, he was this running. This is a little bit on. Yeah, he was. They were talking about him maybe running for Republican office as President of the United yeah. States. So maybe you know, not. Let's remove that. <laughs> yeah, G General MacArthur is one of the most interesting characters in this story to me. His reaction mm -hmm. to the situation that he's in is fascinating. We spend a lot of time in his head, and I'm so glad that we do, because we get to see where his psychology goes. Because it doesn't start at all where it ends. No. It, it begins indignant. It begins... I mean, we several of the characters are actually, when we first see them in their heads, they're thinking to a certain degree about their crime. Vera, in particular, cannot get beyond or escape from her crime. Yes. MacArthur isn't, necessarily. He's more just thinking about, oh, this is a boy's date. I'll meet up. I don't know who this guy is, but he talks to my old friends. We'll go see them. Yeah. When when he's first confronted with his crime, he's in he's he's indignant. He's ruffled. He feels it's almost, more, if anything, more of an insult to his wife than it is to him. But we immediately then go into his psychology, and there is a descent... There's a brief spiral, and then probably more than anybody else, he finds a certain comfort in this. And the fact that he reaches yeah. that point is fascinating. Him sitting yeah. out and looking over the cliffs and the interactions that he has with a couple of people over the course of the day before he dies, where he is not only resigned to his death, but is... Accepting of it. Accepting, welcoming of it, um, and is, in fact, relieved, is so mm -hmm. interesting. He views it very much as a reprieve, because we go into what he's been carrying on himself about this, that originally he just represents you know, he's the stalwart military type, he hasn't thought about what happened in the war for years, but as yeah. we spend more time with him, we see that, no, he has been tortured by this. That when he originally did it, he just did it. It was almost an act of instinct. He even comments at one point that, how could that be viewed as a murder? How could that be seen in that way? Uh, it was just an act. It was something he didn't, didn't think about. He didn't carry any guilt for it. 
but it's Billy like these s- things happened all the time. Like, you know, how, how, how is he to know that? Which is, in fact, what everyone else thought when... Right. Yeah, that he had a brief lapse and he sent his best aide to his death. Oh, well, World War One. that was the least of what was going <laughs> on then. Uh, but then what originally starts to turn him is the reaction of his wife. Mm-hmm. That he, I think we might agree, profoundly loved her. Yes. He's clearly significantly older than her, and that formed a divide that he, even he didn't fully understand. But seeing her just kind of collapse in as a person and retreat from him and seemingly die almost implies in a certain inescapable grief a few years afterwards, it tortures him because he knows mm-hmm. that he did that. Mm-hmm. And then seeing yeah. all of his friends and pondering to what degree are they spreading rumors because that one aide knew and who did he tell and who is talking to me weird or not talking to me now, whatever else. We don't really understand at the start of the story how much he is tortured by this. Mm-hmm. And as you said, Sarah, how much he almost, not even almost, straight up looks forward to death as an escape from it afterwards. Uh, and even frames it as something that only the old can truly understand. Mm-hmm. You know, almost sympathizes with Vera that she hasn't reached that point and may not be able to. And this conversation really freaks Vera out in the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because Vera, Vera is actively trying to escape her guilt. She's trying to get, to get away from it, to move past it by some means. And this is a man that has wrapped it up like a warm cloak that he's finally comfortable to get away from. Mm-hmm. He's finally comfortable. He's finally known what the only escape from it is. And I think some of this is, like, the age differences, which I'm not sure how well they carry, or how they carry through to different adaptations, but, like, she's clearly the youngest by a reasonable amount. Maybe not much more than Marston, but, like... Yeah, I mean, she might have been a contemporary with Marston, but we get so little of them interacting together, it, it doesn't even yeah. matter. I, I wouldn't picture her past 25. No. In, ter- in terms of what age I get from the book. I would say early 20s, yeah. Yeah. But I think the willingness of... The guilt that MacArthur clearly bears and his willingness to accept a certain fate or punishment when it comes to that, mm-hmm. he almost assumes that the harbinger of his fate is going to be his wife. He even seems to be waiting for her. Mm-hmm. That yeah. she mm-hmm. is going to be what carries him into the afterlife. She is going to be the one that takes this pain away from him here at the last moment, or in the same way, comes to cast final punishment upon him for it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that factors into Wargrave's decision that he's not somebody that was just talked into it. He's not somebody that can't, that just emotionally is incapable of recognizing he did wrong, but he's probably the person most of the story that is accepting that he did something wrong and is bearing that guilt upon him. Yep. Yeah. But I really, like you, sir, I really like his character and I like his addition to the story because he just provides such a fun psychological jaunt to go through as we experience the tale. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would, it would be he... oppressive to go through, like, more of his no. mind than we actually go through. <laughs> but right. for the time That's... that he's with us, I think it, it sets up, um, it certainly sets up really well the inevitability of the situation that we're in because he's the only one right. who's willing to say it. And... and... I think he, he provides a good balance to uh, Justice Wargrave mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of just, like, how they're dealing with the circumstances. And it sort of makes the different roles that people are playing a little bit more believable and easier to handle. Mm-hmm. He also funds a, for, serves a fun literary role, is that he's kind of like the Ophelia of the story, of where he's the character that's, prena- that's making the prophetic pronouncement mm-hmm. that just informs everybody else's psychology going forward. Yep. Yeah, because once he has you know made this declaration that none of us are leaving here, no one's the same after they hear that. Particularly not yeah. Vera, because this really starts Vera's descent into full-on madness that only gets worse. 
And she keeps coming back to this as the story goes. So he's an essential part of the story and the with the proper uh, economic use of him that we see. As you said, any more use of him, this would be an even more oppressive and dark tale. Yeah. But um, where do we go from here, sir? So we go to seven little soldier boys chopping up sticks. One chopped himself in halves, and then there were six. And this is one of the, like, creepier lines of the poem. <laughs> like, the idea... Yeah. I don't, it is d- deeply disturbing to me that someone would just accidentally chop themselves in half. Which I realize is not exactly what happens in, but I don't. Something about it like really gives me the willies. Yeah. You gotta lo- gotta love those nineteenth-century nursery rhymes that you'd say to children in their beds. <laughs> 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 One chopped himself in halves, and then there were six. Night, night, honey. Okay. <laughs> um, this is probably the most on the nose of the deaths of where yes. of where we have Rogers, and Rogers is. Is as a serious divot added to the back of his skull by means of an axe. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Um, yeah. And we've already talked a bit about Rogers. I mean, is there a lot more that we want to cover? No, what, the only what? other one thing I want to point out is I thought it was, was re- his reaction to the whole situation was so interesting in the... Because by the time we get to Rogers' death, we are, we are very clearly into people are being murdered. Um, but mm-hmm. we are also into people have noticed that the figurines on the dining room table are missing. R- Rogers originally, too. Yes. Yeah. And and Rogers takes it upon himself to say, well, I don't know what else is going to happen tonight, but nobody's going to get one of these figurines. I love everybody has a different means of thwarting what's happening of where we see like Lombard and Bloor. They're actively men's men exploring the island. They're going to catch the murderer. <laughs> yep. Uh War, Wargrave is, you know, purporting to really think about what each step they can do to protect themselves. Rogers, I'm going to stop this damn rhyme. This is how <laughs> yeah, I it really this. is a, like, chicken-in-the-egg yeah. situation, but, like, can I just get... But, the mechanism seems he, to be the rhyme. What if we stop the rhyme? <laughs> and honestly, if he did successfully prevent that aspect of the rhyme, it might have worked better than anybody else's things. Mm-hmm. If Wargrave yeah. couldn't make each step of this happen, I don't think he would have done it. Like, if he couldn't get to the figurines, if he couldn't get, yeah. make sure each one of these occurred as is, he probably would have delayed until he could. He had a very specific plan. Um, so I, do you think he had backup figurines, like, stashed <laughs> away? No, no, no. It, 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 the entire point of the figurines is the psychology of it. He yes. wants them yeah. to be fearful of what was happening to them. He wants them to ponder whether they're there. So I, it's, it's one thing I really appreciate about Rogers, but A, that he's still carrying on his job while all of this is happening, and B, he... While it's a simplistic way of understanding what's occurring, it's probably ultimately the most accurate means that anyone ever comes to actually thwarting the plot. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Particularly, particularly in the way of describing it, thwarting the plot rather than necessarily the events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, I, think, I think we've got enough there. Where, where yeah. do we go from there, sir? One of my favorites of, of these uh, couplets. Six little bo- soldier boys playing with a hive. A, bum- a bumblebee stung one, and then there were five. Emily Brent. <laughs> Uh, and Sarah, I would never compare you to Emily Brent, but the fact you started this call while knitting... I felt had connotations. <laughs> <laughs> it had connotations. Um, uh, but Brent is another fascinating character. She is very interesting, yes. We spend a fair portion... We spend some portion of the story in her head, but one of the main things we do with her is we see everybody else's reaction to her, probably more than, probably more than any other character. Of where... Yeah. She makes very little effort to hide what she is and how she feels. Mm-hmm. And she openly expresses that. And it's a lot of fun to see everybody, the moment she just expresses a complete lack of guilt from what occurred, 
moment that she openly just reveals to Vera that, yeah, I sent her out of the house and she died. So so happens to sinners. Which she expresses that she feels that the devil has come to the island for his due or whatever else. <laughs> it's just so great to see everybody just immediately turn and go, oh, shit. So it's probably it's her, right? It. <laughs> yes. Also, like, such an unpleasantly real character. Mm-hmm. Like, you know these people. We, we all know an Emily Brent, yes. Right. And knitting aside, I hope I'm not that for anyone, but... <laughs> it, what, what, it, she's an interesting... She's an interesting, in some ways, parallel to MacArthur, that she has the same kind of buried guilt which comes to the surface. She sees it as a woman coming to get her. It's a physical manifestation, yeah. She has Mm -hmm. that moment of being left alone in the chair, staring off, seeing her death in some ways coming. But it's a thoroughly more repressed sense of guilt. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. buried under so much piousness, so much feeling that she is in God's grace, that she is acting in the Lord's name, and she can therefore be immune and above sin. And also a hefty dose of chloral hydrate. Well, we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> but it's this all kind of id buried beneath the superego, where she's got yeah. these just layers of protection, these layers of litany yeah. that helps shield her from her own guilt. But as she's increasingly forced through those, it is there. It is buried, but it is haunting. And as you said, sir, it has a physicality to it. In many ways, almost more of a ghost that seems to be pursuing her. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting in the adaptation, too, and this feels like a very, like, a 2015, like, mid-2010s thing to do with an adaptation of a story from the 1930s, (laughs) um, is that in her flashbacks... Dealing with, and I, I've forgotten what the name of the girl is, who is her maid that she casts out. But in her flashbacks, like, A, the girl is much younger than I would have thought. But B, mm. there are some very clear homoerotic overtones to their relationships. Oh. Um, and that that is feeding into Emily Brent's guilt um, and her religious mania going Interesting. forward. Yeah. It was, that's, it was a... That's really on brand. It was a choice. It was a, it yeah. was a mid-2010s choice. <laughs> yeah. Um, Fair enough. But I it's mean, a it weird didn't, choice. It didn't like but... not work, but it was not in keeping with the Emily Brent that we see in the story itself. I think like that right. isn't I, there. Th- we've for, talked about that's for a more modern audience. I think yeah. But yeah. well, we've talked about like certain things dating a book or a story, and I think in in shows like if and if that was in the book, like it's really a dated thing when stuff like that happens mm-hmm. where. That's thrown in for certain reasons. I mean, it yeah. felt, in the adaptation, it felt like a sort of shock value that was added in. Well, it, it, it carries through the similar connotation mm-hmm. of being pregnant during that period. It's the same kind of ostracizing moment, just adapted for a modern audience. Because the, the idea of being pregnant and abandoned doesn't really you know, resonate with us as much as it would then. Not then, yes, of course you'd throw her out. She's a, she's, she's a woman that engaged in a relation out of marriage. Now, it's, even this is, feels a little bit out of date and dated now, the idea that you could be thrown out of your family for being gay, particularly like 80s, 90s, resonates a bit more. Yeah, and it's, think- it's just like less clear. My, actually, my reading of the adaptation was that the girl did get pregnant and mm. that Emily Brent threw her out less for being pregnant than for being romantically betrayed. Ah, interesting. And the, woman, the woman's name, by the way, was Beatrice Taylor. Thank you, there. yes. Which is possibly why I thought of her as older than she was portrayed in the adaptation, because (laughs) like that's just an old person name. Um, But yeah, she she is a very 
interesting character and where she factors into this story in terms of, well, just one last point before we get into why Wargrave said with is. Sure. Uh, because of her piousness, she has a more modern sensibility on race than any other character yes, in the she story. She does. She's almost like an abolitionist. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Of where, you know, I think it's either Lombard or Vera just say, hey, you know, they were black, so they don't feel pain the way they we do. They were natives. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Which and is so prof- profoundly racist nowadays. It seems like Agatha Christie's acknowledging it then, but having her directly call it out that they, they are all our brothers, it's just it's remarkably progressive, really. Mm-hmm. She, is, she is a complicated character. Uh, she for is. all she is imp- unpleasant in a lot of in a and lot of ways. Honestly, yeah. as a result of the life that she has lived, she's she at least outwardly handles what's happening probably better than anybody other than like say Wargrave and Wargrave's the freaking murderer. <laughs> of where she's keeping it together at all times and directly assisting and helping people as they go, while wrapped up with just an almost psychopathic piousness, <laughs> sure. or driven if by you, a psychopathic piousness. If you can get past that, she's helpful. <laughs> Yeah, she, she's cooking. After Rogers is killed, somebody's got to make the food. It's clearly not the men. No, no, Vera, hmm, Vera and Emily Brent do have to take on a lot of. While while they Vera does break down a couple of times, she does have to take on a lot of emotional and physical labor in what is going on in this situation. I mean, you can't expect anybody to cook for themselves, could you? I, and I love there's not even like a conversation about it, too. It's just immediately like, okay, Rogers is dead, and all the men just turn to the two ladies, like, I'm hungry now. I guess we're making tea. <laughs> like, it's a very weird stratification, too, because it's like, okay, well, the last of the help is dead, so I guess we turn to the women. <laughs> the untouchables have died. Now we're up to the laborer class. <laughs> Jeez. Um, Are we ready? Int- oh, go ahead. What, where, why do we, how do we, where do we think about it? Why do we think Wargrave put her here in terms of guilt? I don't know. It's the 30s and it's weird. I, <laughs> I, I think because, like, he really considers that he drove her, that, that Brent drove her to suicide. And so it was a calculated act more than a happenstance. And I think that there's a little bit of that that Wargrave sees a rightly or wrongly because it is a convoluted logic that he is employing here, but he sees a distinct difference between Marston's Tony Marston's lack of guilt and Emily mm-hmm. Brent's lack of guilt because like I yeah. actually do I do think that that he believes that Tony Marston's act was an an accident to some degree just something that went unpunished in the world is it caused by marston yes of course it is but emily Mm -hmm. brent's act like that was to use your word calculated and she refuses to acknowledge guilt for it even as she clearly feels it like deep down that the victim being a pregnant woman girl whatever also probably factored into how punishable yeah this is and in Meaning, draw the points of comparison you guys just did. I think he views Marston as just a fundamentally defective human being in a way he doesn't with Brent. Mm -hmm. That Brent is a functioning human with morals and Bible and all that kind of background. Yeah, she draws on them very frequently. Maybe if she drew on them a little less, she would appear less guilty. So I think she gets above Marston for that reason. But I think the reason she doesn't factor into even higher in the list is that what she did comes from a certain point of indifference or comes from a certain point of not active deed. Yes. Of where she cast her out, and then that person made a decision from there. She should have known what should have led to it. She brought about that event, 
but she didn't directly cause it in the same way the people that come after her did. Yes. Well, yes. And also interesting, like, how much weight he puts on it, because that's what he uses for his last murder. Mm -hmm. We'll get there. (laughs) Eventually. Uh, Sarah, next. Five little oh, soldiers. Oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I got. I got. I got to mention. What did you guys think about Wargrave adding the bumblebee for that appearance <laughs> right there? I actually yes, that, like. That was... And I thought his explanation at the end was like, I know that this was whimsical and unnecessary, but it made me happy. And I was like, you know what? You murdering son of a bitch. Me too. <laughs> you do, you Wargrave. <laughs> okay, just had to mention that because that was cute. Yeah. Uh, five little soldier boys going in for law. One got in chancery, and then there were four. I, I feel like this one's kind of. Do we want to come back to this one because it's fucking Wargrave? This is yes, this is Wargraves, yeah. and it is complicated as let, let's, he let's, himself is. Let, yeah. Let's end, let's end on Wargrave because okay. it provides the end epilogue to the story. Yeah, uh, four little soldier boys going out to sea. A red herring swallowed one, and then there were three. The, I mean, I lo- I love this one. I love the mystery in it. I love the clue that it gives. Mm-hmm. And Armstrong himself is an interesting character, like all the rest, but particularly since. I think he's one of the earliest in the story, other than Vera, always other than Vera, that yeah. immediately admits his guilt, admits his past crimes, and his active efforts to improve as a human since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that we know from the beginning that he killed somebody, or that he has deeds in his past that he's worked actively to get around. Yes. Yeah. So, almost more than anybody else in this story, he's the one that has acknowledged he did wrong and tried to rebuild his life in a different direction afterwards. He's never admitted his crime to anybody. He's actively worked to cover it up by essentially browbeating a woman that was... I, your first her was a sister. I'm guessing it was a... a, 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 a yeah, I assume it's a, sort a of nurse. Catholic hospital, or, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that would be my presumption. But I, I also feel like this... He gets the position he does for two reasons. One, he's the helper and he kind of needs to be around for a while. Sure. <laughs> that we sort of end up getting to. And two, because it's a subversion of justice, Wargrave hates it like he covered up negligent like a negligent murder basically Mm -hmm. and And so in terms of like the crime that was committed i think if it weren't an effrontery of what wargrave believes in it would be much higher up Mm -hmm. he would have gone earlier remind me i'm actually just remembering this Wargrave said at the end that one of the people that died was a was it was the daughter of a friend of his was the daughter was it was the, was a family member of a friend of his I don't think it was this one I think it actually was, it may have been um I don't remember who it was but I, I, I'll, I don't I'll either let me see if I can about. I can yeah, find so, it while we're so talking this, about it I think this one was he was in like a convalescent hospital or something like that and somebody that, that, mentioned that's where this one came up yeah. like mm. the, the the nurse mentioned something I think you're right. Actually, oh, wasn't no. the daughter of the friend of his, wasn't that actually the Isaac Morris character who got the daughter of the friend of You're his right. into, into drugs? And that was like, right. this is the 10th person that isn't on the island. Good good memory, Sarah. Good memory. That's right. right. That, that's where I was just like, wait a minute, who is the druggy person? Because for some reason, I conflated that with um, the the butler. Mm, mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. But I'd say almost that Armstrong serves as closest thing we get to an everyman in this story. Because he's he provides a lens to both understanding the medicine, which is a little bit out of us, but it gives right. us a description, it gives us predictive events. He spends the most time talking with the other characters and pondering what's happening and trying to make friends. Yeah. And he has a level of stress that doesn't go to the level of madness we see in Vera, 
but is getting increasingly out of sorts as the story goes. Yes. And his death is ultimately driven by a desperate need to trust someone. Mm -hmm. Yep. He makes um, and he's also trying to sort of help everybody out with, like, what he can. Mm -hmm. And then everybody's suspicious of the drugs that he's offering. Fair enough. But... Sure. but he's... Of the characters, he's the most, I'd say, normal. And of those that I would say is normal... Actually, I would, I would describe MacArthur as normal. MacArthur has <laughs> his own demons, whatever else. But of those that survive afterwards, he comes across as being the most normal and grounded, maybe even the most likable, in the sense that he's probably more than the rest of our characters come at the end, fully acknowledging of, our, of what occurred and feeling the guilt of it, and seemingly making active efforts to fix himself afterwards, which is commendable and probably why he factors here on the list as compared to our top three. And right. it's interesting in the this latest adaptation um, is that what gets played up about him is not his normality, but the exact reason that Wargrave chooses him as an ally. This, I'm a doctor and therefore irreproachable, and how dare you accuse me? He becomes yeah. a real twit in the adaptation. Like, he's insufferable. And that, 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 that's perfectly fine to pull that, because it is specifically one of the reasons Warcrave mentioned that he put him in this role, is that this kind of just classism assumption that he would engage in, that we two are members of the professional upper classes, clearly it couldn't be either of us. Which I think it's yeah. on, it does get a little underplayed in the story itself. Like, it does take mm -hmm. Wargrave's explaining that in the epilogue. I don't think it gets enough play in the story itself. I'm curious. I, I think that the... Well, this sort of happened, and it wasn't, like, murder, and it was barely even negligence, but it shouldn't happen in his, I was way too drunk to operate and killed somebody. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think, it, you know, it's just sort of how much you focus on that rather than his telling of it. Sure. Yeah. And I, I, want, I wonder that readers or, you know, watchers of the play back in 1939 might have been more in the mindset of just assuming that, oh, that's a judge. Clearly it couldn't be him. Oh, that's a doctor. Clearly he couldn't have done it. it. Yeah, just that with, might be true. Just with a greater sense of respect to, oh, blind respect for authority than we necessarily have now. Mm. Oh, but um, unless somebody else has anything to say about, no. more to say about Armstrong, yes. should we move on? Three little soldier boys walking in the zoo. A big bear hugged one, and then there were two. I love that this one is so incongruous mm -hmm. that the characters have to point it out that, well, there's not a zoo on the island. We're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nobody brought a bear, did they? All right, we're fine. Um, yeah, um, I, I will say that I did latch onto immediately in this story the fact that there was a bear clock. Yunk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, 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 is a, that is a clear bit of foreshadowing of, well, that bit of marble you just spent two paragraphs describing is going to come back it's, here later on. It's not a <laughs> not a Nabokov gun, but it is. Yes. Um well, our character here is uh, not Davis, but Blore. Uh, yeah. Henry Blore, who is a former uh, member of Scotland Yard and is a very... He's a, I mean, all these characters are well-rounded and complicated and interesting, but this guy in particular is fun. Cause you're never, and this is something that adaptations have struggled with in terms of depicting, is how much you want to view him as an idiot or not. Yes. I would also yeah. like to point out that it's a Chekhov gun and not, not a Nabokov gun. <laughs> Which possibly no one else would comment on, but would bother me if I did not clarify. We're with you. Uh, but Blore is very much the detective of this story. I mean, yes. every cozy mystery has the detective, as the amateur detective. Yeah. He doesn't quite fit in that role. But more actively than almost anyone, he's actively working, not necessarily just to catch the guy, but to solve the crime. Yes. Right. And he, was basically brought there for kind of those reasons. 
Yes, that there might be a threat to the jewels of Mrs. U.N. Owen, and that he needs to be there to prevent it from happening. Mm -hmm. um, and so he arrives under a false name, and he's constantly investigating everybody else. And as I said before, I think at one point or another, he accuses almost every single person in this story to their face of being the murderer. Yep. Which um, I would not recommend that when you're confronting a murderer generally, but Blore does what Blore does. It'd be very funny if there was, like, a Pink Panther adaptation... Inspector Clouseau. Yes. Well, I mean, like, like usually the ins the police presence in a cozy mystery is usually pretty bumbling. It, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, and that's drawing from almost like a Sherlock Holmes basis kind of thing. Yes. Where they need to be lesser than the Holmes for the Holmes to be great. Right. Uh, but I want to point out, though, that Bloor, I don't feel, is an idiot. That yeah. he actually he actually goes about rather competently investigating the crime. He actually mm -hmm. deduces several things faster than some of the other characters do. Like what happened to the hypodermic syringe about right. how that was how that was thrown out, about how the killer successfully removed the Indian with respect to that. He actually has a pretty good head. I think the story more says that he lets he lets his passions get in the way of his reason. He's like two steps ahead of where he actually of where his thoughts are. Yeah. And so while he's thinking things out rather well and serves a key role in terms of investigating the crime, he acts before he thinks and it ultimately gets him killed. Um, and I would also say that I think he's one of the reasons he's where he is on the list is again a subversion of justice. I think and that, even says that for that one, yeah. Right, but like I mean that's what he did, and because that's such an anathema to Wargrave, he that he's so much higher on the list or lower on the list, mm -hmm. whatever. And we st we start getting up to a point with both this one and the next one. Of this is a character that doesn't feel we don't see feels any guilt for what he. Yeah. The closest we get is at the very end of the story. It's almost a reflection of how little guilt he feels. Is that when he, for the first time in years, sees the face of Seton, the guy, he, not Seton. Um, I've forgotten yeah. what his name is, but Seton is I, the one with um, the, with Wargraves. Wargrave, yeah. I, I got a I got a list here. Uh, James Stephen Landor. Yes. Mm -hmm. That for the first time in years he sees his face, and he thought he'd forgotten it. He thought he could never see that face again because it hasn't mattered to him. Mm -hmm. And as he's looking at that face, almost surprised that it's still in his head, he has his first thought ever for the family. Mm -hmm. That he yeah. suddenly sees the wife again. He suddenly realizes, oh right, he had a daughter. Huh. And I wonder why I never thought about, thought about them before. And for any other character in the story, that might have been a moment of feeling guilt. For the characters that are early on our list, that might have been a moment of feeling guilt. For him, it's just a passing thought and he moves on to the next thing. Yep. And so I, I think, like, a combination of this subversion of justice, like, you know, lying on the stand, and the callousness in which he did it, and, like, gives him the, this place on the list. I was just going to say that, like, the... I, I, this adaptation, the way that they have portrayed the crimes of these individuals and the changes they've made are so interesting. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. in this version, um, Bloor is, like, actively beats him in his cell until he dies. Yeah. This is not a lying on okay. the stand. Like, he, he is dead in police custody, and it's Bloor's fault. And I don't feel that works with what we kind of see no. of the character in this. Mm -hmm. it, it, the, the, I think it, it, the character works based on how easily he's able to divorce himself from what occurred. Yes. It's just that, yeah, you know, it was a thing. I was paid off. I did it. Mm -hmm. Whatever. Uh, and I love that with this character, probably more than anybody else, this is the one that's the most open that he's a problem. <laughs> is that when we cut the Scotland Yard... Everybody immediately goes, yep, oh, he was no, dirty. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, 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 there's no mystery here that the guy did it. Yes. It's just he's cloaked in the protection of the law and the fact that the judgment was entered, it's done. Um, yeah. So he's, he's almost, I say almost, we're moving to the, probably the most brazen of all of them here in a second. But 
Yeah, he's the one that I've seen a few adaptations of this. I think he's the one that most adaptations probably get the most wrong mm-hmm. because he's a one of the most physically imposing. They say several times that he's like an equal match, maybe even bigger and more imposing than Lombard is. Mm-hmm. That he's a competent enough investigator about going about the crime, um, and he's not the kind of nondescript bumbling fool that we often see in a lot of the adaptations. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's a hard one to pin down. Yeah. Yep. Shall I move and on? Our- Next one. Yes. Uh, depending on which version, uh, I have the sun, but uh, two little soldier boys sitting in the sun. One got frizzled up, and then there were not. Then there was one. Yeah. I've I read both versions of this. Either work for what happened. Yes. But I, I think one was a post after post Agatha Christie version. <laughs> um, but we, for here we have Philip Lombard, who is prop. He is one of my favorites, just because of how he's so frequently described. Yes. Yeah, I also I also find him one of the most likable characters. Um, yeah, because he it, goes and does things. He goes and does things. He also he's a man of action. He is he is a man of action, and he is well wh- what he is convicted of and murdered <laughs> for uh, is obviously reprehensible. I actually f- find his honesty about it refreshing. Mm-hmm. That he's a, he's a man that's perfectly content in his own skin. And is perfectly yes. content where he is. And it leads him... I I love his reactions for like the first half of the story. Everybody else is starting to come apart at the scenes. He almost seems energized by this. He yep. like draws up a little taller with the, the possibility for action. And the sort of like stealing of the spine that is required here. Right. He's a person that has made most of his life at the extremes of society, at the you know the the wild lens. He's been the, you know the Sir, the Sir Richard Francis the the, the, um, the Richard Francis Burton kind of explorer of that era kind of thing, of where yeah. he spent most of his career at just away from what this is now the more orderly world, and probably doesn't function that well in it. We see at the beginning of the story that he's on his last dollar. He can't make a job. He can't really find a way to function and continue now that he's back in the real world. Mm-hmm. And so now when he's on this island again, when he's under threat, when there's an active risk of death upon him, he's in his element. This is his hour. Which is so true to these mercenary figures and how they end up functioning in society. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I love the physicality that's described with, his, with respect to his character. Probably the most... He's the most consistently physically described other than maybe Marston of where... He's describing these feral, animalistic terms. Yeah. The Bloor was like described as this being this big, stubborn mule kind of thing. Meanwhile, Lombard is a panther. Like wolf he's teeth fe- and, and yeah. He's a predator. He's consistently smiling when he's confronting these kind of moments, almost like you know how a great ape will smile at you before he punches your lights out or whatever else. Um, or or worse, <laughs> punching would be mild. I think you're going to get a dressing down at some point, though. It is the totally true. It's totally true. Um, but it, I love how much he's in his moment. I love how competent he is when he goes about this. Where he's the one that always proposes the, the next step of what they're going to do in terms of an action. Yep. His guilt is interesting because there's just none of it at all. Yep. I fully it's very of an age. That, so I mean, he's the only character that openly admits his crime at the very start. Mm-hmm. And though we spend a fair portion of time in his head, he's the only character that never even thinks about his crime at all. No. Yeah. So how did it get updated? Um, I mean, there's a flashback, but there's still no, there's no guilt. What, what, what was his crime, I guess? Oh, his, or... I mean, his crime was like literally destroying a village. Oh, yeah, that, that's okay. more active. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, 
Okay. Yeah, it was it was not the sort of like, and this is I, I think once again, a lot of these kind of changes to the crimes themselves are because you have such a limited time on screen to convey so much of what would be would would be guilt inducing, and these flashbacks mm -hmm. are so brief. Um, but if I am remembering cor correctly, um, the, it was not that he left a contingent of sort of East African tribesmen to die. It was that yeah. his mercenary unit was charged with, like it was his decision-making that like this village will burn. I feel like a good adaptation would be like a Vietnam vet or, you know, Iraq war vet or something like that that accidentally got like a, you know, called in coordinates that were slightly off mm. or, you know, Vietnam where like the wind blew wrong or something and people died and it's just like, you probably maybe you shouldn't have done that, but but he doesn't even a, really have the in the even in the story he doesn't have the maybe you shouldn't have done that. So I think it had to not be a mistake. This was right. a decision. Yeah, and it, it's such an interesting moment too of where this is the kind of decision that wouldn't have been judged under the standards of the time. It's what that, needed yeah. to be done. Yeah, that I and the other white people. It's not even alone in making the decision. No, it's him and no, the no, other no. white leaders there were there. That yeah. well. We had to save ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What else? I was gonna what say, else choice did we have? Thirties was probably late for that. Probably well, like eighteen hundreds is. Well, again, it's how old we think Lombard is. I think Lombard is probably. I viewed him as being mid or later thirties. I would and say mid thirties. Yeah. Yeah, but I think the like the date of the crime that was said was in the early nineteen hundreds, which. It would, yeah. Well, the day of the crime was 1932, so it was only like six years oh, earlier. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, that's... I thought it was the 1907 one. Never mind. Well, again, if it not have been this later era, it's perfectly possible that Wargrave wouldn't have picked it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, if it changes sensibilities, <laughs> the Wargrave viewed this as a problem. Yeah. Um, but one one thing I like, too, is that one thing that drives us as character is this kind of sardonic, macabre sense of humor. Mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. really wraps up the character throughout the initial part of the story. And we reach a heavy just pivot point of when he can't joke anymore. Yep. Of when yeah. he breaks down, when he starts to go a bit nutty, when he just goes on a rant about how unfair all of this is. We know we've crossed the line of where we can't really come back. Of right. where the guy that has endured everything, that has always been worse, scraps, has finally decided that this is the worst. <laughs> That's kind of the breaking point for all the other characters. Because effectively, him, he's almost just holding them up by just his own... In, his own schoolboy carelessness with respect to the danger that's being inflicted upon them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a last point here is that you guys mentioned adaptation. Uh, in the play, it's adapted... BJ, you mentioned him being a veteran. He's adapted to be a member... to be a former member of the King's African Rifles. So, mm -hmm. proper... proper member of the, yeah. the British colonial forces. And though the story's exactly the same, it's adapted that... Well, that is the story that he says, and he openly admits to that story because he's tired of explaining it. He's tired of, tired right. of justifying himself. But in reality... He went off on his own through the bush to try to rescue his men, mm. leaving them with all the supplies to himself beat his way to the bush to go seek help. And though yeah. he, by miracle, survived, he couldn't get back in time fast enough to rescue them. But because nobody believed him anyway, he's just gotten tired of, lie, t tired of trying to explain himself. That's interesting. Yeah. So it's, 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 hmm. it's interesting enough that uh, Agatha Christie herself felt the need to explain it, to adapt it differently. But it factors into the fact that in the play, two people are innocent, mm -hmm. it turns out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But... Not in, in this story, our, though. <laughs> yeah. In terms of our guilty people, we end what I feel is the... Well, we don't end, but we, we end our poem at what yes. I feel is the most fascinating of all. Yeah. One little soldier boy left all alone. He went and hanged himself, and then there were none. Vera Claythorne. Yeah. Yeah. Who is, I would say, although, you know, um, 
And I would be interested to know if you all feel the same about this, but she seems in, in a lot of ways, in my reading, to be the main character. Like, we spend the most time yeah. with her. I feel like we get the most insight yeah. into her, other than Wargraves' epilogue, of course. But beyond that, and I feel like most adaptations play it this way, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't need to update her crime character for the most part. No, like, it all feels, that's what it current. is. Yeah. It, feels t- it feels timeless. Mm-hmm. There's, no, there's nothing loaded to a particular era when it comes to her. And she, I agree that she's unquestionably the main character, both in, she's effectively the last moment in the mainline story before we go to the epilogue. Mm-hmm. But she's also yeah. one of the earliest moments. And she's one of the earliest moments that tells us that this, is, this story is more than it seems. Yeah. Of where one of the first moments we have of her is her guilt and her active effort to suppress it and keep it out of her immediate experience and her active regrets when it's associated with it. We yep. get guilt from her before we even know what her crime is. Yes. Yeah. She, she is just like, like guilt shut out the personified. <laughs> right. Yes. It is always bubbling under the surface. And seeing her go with that becomes remarkably fun um, because we, we, we want to view her as very sympathetic at the start of the story because she's yep. the one that seems her guilt's most at the surface. Mm-hmm. But as the story goes on, we find out what she did, but she's still, still associated with the guilt and whatever else. But by the time we end, the way she refers to this child mm-hmm. of this just yep. little brat that she never cared for, whatever else, we start to get maybe a sense of why Wargrave probably put her farther up on this list. Is that yeah. The guilt she feels is only because Hugo left her. Yes. Right. It's, it's only through Hugo's eyes. It's not her guilt. Yeah, and it, 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 like she was so surprised that you know Hugo didn't just like oh well you know we're fine. Uh, and I love how misleading that is. Yes. The, of the story where you assume yeah. that she's just in the same boat as the other people's guilt that we see that she's regretting her she's regretting what she did she's regretting the loss she inflicted the pain. No 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 she's regretting that what she did didn't pay off. Mm-hmm. She's regretting that her she loss. was re- she was re- she was re- she's regretting what she views as her profound act of love and devotion that he didn't recognize it that he rejected her. Yeah, how could he? Mm-hmm. Now like he only she only drove a child to their death from drove his nephew to their yeah. death. Yeah, that... and and he was set to inherit after that, so it's all <laughs> nice. Now there are. It's interesting. That that's where her guilt is all coming from. Because I don't know that Wargrave even fully understands that. No, Based I think it what... happened into the story that actually worked in his favor. Right. Think about what he uses to try to trigger her guilt, to mm-hmm. put her into this hypnotic suggestion. Mm-hmm. It's all associated with the body. It's mm-hmm. all associated with right. the dead child. It's the seaweed. It's the smell of the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's things yep. along those lines. Those are ultimately why she, is, why she commits suicide. Those ultimately aren't the reasons. It triggers an emotional response from her. Sure, it's right. never It's never associated with the kid. Yep. It's never associated with the crime she convicted. It's the loss she feels that Hugo abandoned her. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sorry, I really agree with you that Wargrave got lucky. It really turns out at the end of the story yeah. in some ways. Because I don't think he ever fully understood what was the basis of her regret. Not guilt, regret. Mm-hmm. Yep. He, she yes. was... He, he decided that she was the most terrible... But little did he know she was worse than he thought. <laughs> and I'm curious with y'all, to what degree do you find her sympathetic? Because the story gives you a lot of time with her to find her sympathetic. Or at least to spend a lot of time with her thoughts. In the end, do we feel... I mean, I feel a certain measure of regret or sadness for some of these characters, or at least empathy for some of these characters. Do you guys yeah. ultimately for Vera from where, where we end up? No. <laughs> 
BJ's, BJ says this. Sarah, you seem more conflicted. I, I don't know. I, I find it difficult. I mean, I realize that she's terrible. <laughs> but I actually find it difficult partially because she is, for better or worse, throughout the story, she, although she has a couple of hysterical fits, she also is frequently one of the most likable people as she functions throughout the story. And so she keeps up this facade yeah. in a way that continues to pull me in as a reader. Um, yeah. I will also like readily admit that this is a story devoid of female characters um, mm -hmm. as we go through. And so I actually just like identify with her as a woman, especially in like a particularly male space as we lose Mrs. Rogers and Emily Brent. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I, I feel like they weren't... <laughs> Really fleshed Mrs. out characters. Yes, Mrs. Rogers. Yes, Brit had a bit. Yes, but but like so I find I'm, it difficult to not identify with that, and then therefore also sympathize with her in this situation, despite her gotcha. like. So don't ask you to babysit. Terror. Hundred percent. Cat sit. Okay, cats don't like water anyway. Um, listeners, you can't see my face right now, but there is a lot of sort of like Larry David <laughs> going on. No. <laughs> now, the reason I asked is I'm very conflicted about her, too, for two reasons. One, from just a serious empathetic standpoint, she's our emotional core of yes. the story. We are yeah. made she, to empathize with her. Right. right. We're made to see what she endures. Mm -hmm. She feels what we would feel. We feel the story through her. And so mm -hmm. we are almost forced insidiously to empathize with her for that reason. Because how couldn't you when you see somebody enduring them? Particularly when we see it before we ever know what fully understand her yeah i also just adore how competent she is that she's the first one that proposes they look at the damn poem mm -hmm. and she's the one that keeps bringing them back to it and even wargrave said that she was the one i was always staring at because she was the one i knew would make it to the end because of her brilliant little ploy with respect to lombard at the end of where she knows the connotations of her society she knows the way that he perceives her she knows the way he's going to look down on her in many ways, as much as he's respected her throughout the story, really. And she plays off that to get to catch him at advantage and get the gun yes. and use that yep. against him. And that's delightful to see that play out. It's delightful to use her skills to her advantage to play out the story. And even as it ends, as we see her kind of just as this haunted moment, it's a wonderful scene of the last few pages of mm -hmm. her just walking through this charnel house that is now their home with this kind of comforting mist falling over her somewhat of what she heard macarthur describe is that we get to have her provide an exit so she's vile she's a person that is that does not even really recognize in some ways the crime of her actions but she's so integral to the story that i can't i can't disassociate her from how much i love the story mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, i get that part yeah i think but that's, it, i think that's fair it's it's interesting because she was sort of the only one that really was conniving in this murder. I would say other than than the butler. Mr. The Rogers butler is really, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but Mr. Rogers didn't do anything. He didn't do something was what he did. She yes. well, did something. Well, she did something and just like go swim. Knowing he'd die. And then actively made effort to cover it up. Well, she did have the thought yeah. like, well, if he does make it. Yeah, I mean, I guess she was sort of the combination of uh, Rogers and um, the, what's her name? Uh, Brent? Yes. She, she's a, her crime is a fun mix of a lot of people, of where 
it's done for pecuniary motive, so it's got a bit of a blore in there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's done. It, it's done by persuading somebody to do something or acting on somebody else's impulse to do something, which is straight up Brent. Yeah. It's done with a certain measure of indifference, so or a certain measure of just letting events happen. So that's Rogers. And then there's the cover up that's you know a bunch of them that you, she swam out there and there's nothing that she could do right. and she was praised for it almost. So it's almost of all of the crimes that are being investigated, it's probably the most that fits into a cozy mystery just because of how many different factors it has yeah. at play to fit to yep. have it going. Yep, and it it is Very also well covered like, up. you know it is fundamentally motivated well it's interesting because it is simultaneously motivated by what is presented as this um yeah all-consuming love right um yeah. this yeah. sort of fiery all-consuming love but it is also then underneath that the sort of like well she is an unmarried woman in the 1930s <laughs> who is yep. like working as a governess and then eventually working at a girl's school but like she's got to get married at some point like yeah. she doesn't have any options so it, yeah. it also gets complicated by that which i think is so interesting and also what makes her character so complicated even as she's mm-hmm. the worst Right. Yeah, I, I have. I mean, this is a, this is a class commentary, but I have to work under the idea that the writer is writing her is coming from a very poor background. Mm-hmm. I think she's um, upwardly striving. That she's upwardly yeah. striving. I think that factors in. I think the audience would almost assume that when they see her character, yeah. where she's she's young, she's very pretty, she's very available, but she's unmarried. Oh, she's not well established in society yet. How much is that driving what she does? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, she, I could. We talk about Vera to no end, but I feel yes. like we need to wrap things up when it comes to our. Let's go to Wargraves. War, yep. Remind us of the rhyme. I will. I will take you to the rhyme that doesn't rhyme in an American accent. What? Pro- <laughs> pronounce pronounce it Britishy for us, if you would. Jeez. <laughs> I know. I'll see if I can get there. Um, five little soldier boys going in for law. One got in chancery, and then there were four. Well done. Um, Wargrave is great. Once we finally understand what the hell he is. Yeah, he's terrible yeah. when he's just a guy on the island. Yes. Because for most of the story, he's just a guy. He's probably, the, other than his physicality, he's mostly other characters just talking about him rather than us getting much of an insight into his mind, yeah. which it turns out is really intentional. Is that everybody describes him as being this angry, gnarled turtle of a man. <laughs> where he's got this massive I, I picture him as just this massive hunch with a head that is just projecting below his shoulders kind of thing. Mitch McConnell uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a Mitch McConnell effect here um, but what, as we discussed we get some certain level of just malevolence and insidiousness hinted at him Yeah. of where he seems absolutely convinced that his that you know Seton was guilty and it seems like there's evidence that Seton was guilty but the main thing we get, one of the early things we get is that he not only has no guilt for it, he feels it was full of cloak of law, but he's proud of it, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Because nobody yeah. else throughout the story describes their, what they did with any measure of pride. I mean, he talks about, like, wanting to kill from a young age. and We just, just there at the end, yes. Yes. But, the, yeah, but the, even on the yeah, island. In the story, about, yeah. Yeah. Well, we've described a bit of him of what occurs in the story. I love that Lombard is the only one that suspects Tim over the course of the entire tale. Mm-hmm. Nobody else entertains for a moment, but Lombard at first guess says, "Well, it's obviously Wargrave." Right. He's <laughs> really disappointed when it's you know apparently not. Right. But and yeah. he did a good job of you know throwing 
off suspicion. Well, and this is one thing I wanted to ask you. Because I always, I struggled with this when I was a kid. I've come more to terms with it now. How do we feel about his plan to fake his own death? About, and you and you use Armstrong through it. When I first read it, it kind of took me out of it. Just when I then found out that it was faked. Because I didn't necessarily find it believable that everybody else would be not double check or verify or just go along with it. But since then, I've come more to terms with it. Just given the heightened emotional state they're all in. And they have their doctor, Armstrong, immediately vouched that that's what happened. Right. Yeah. I mean... I don't know. Having other people check, you know, it's hard what? to say. Um, I, I, I think it's it's more like a, it depends how it was done. Right. I think one of the things always put me off is the fact that it's just a little bit of red coming out of his head. Yeah, the yeah. bullet is harder. It would have been easier to, like, fake a poisoning than to... It would have been right. more believable to fake a poisoning, but they had to get the gun out and about Back. in the world. Yeah, back yeah. in the back in the drawer in the end too. Yes. I, I, I think one of the things that helps cover it up too is the theatricality of that death more than any other. Yes. Yeah. Is that he's in wig, he's in robes, he's presented as if he's still on the bench, and that hides the details because they're all caught up with that image. In yeah, it almost it keeps you at a distance. Like that amount of dramatics will keep you from mm-hmm. an investigation. And, and I, I like the mix of that clearly seems to be the intent of Wargrave to have that amount of dramatics. But also, as we've learned in the last letter, he's also just a really dramatic person. Right. As it turns out, quietly, he really would have enjoyed being a ham in the theater. Yeah, he needs he yeah. needed to, He needs an audience. He needed a community theater to be a part of, and maybe we yeah. could have prevented some of this. So the psychology of Wargrave we get in the last letter is fascinating of where he is openly acknowledging and aware of his sadistic tendencies. Mm-hmm. But he has this well-built superego on top of that to prevent him from acting on it. That He describes it as that he has such a profound sense of law and justice that he would never act on it. And that he got involved in a profession of where he could legally kill within cloak of the law, but only the guilty, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the two things seem to be driving him to take a much more active act. Well, three. A, he's always wanted to do it. B, he's dying. Mm-hmm. And C, he's finding it harder to, to keep his impulses in check. Yeah. Um, All sort of weird, but sure. Sure. It, 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 as, you just, as you read in one of those comments, he's a bit of a Dexter character, as it turns <laughs> out at the end of the story. Yeah. Um, but I, that last epilogue paints him as such a... <laughs> this is a weird thing to say. An interestingly human character. I love his need for attention at the end. Yes. Yeah. That he's purposely spent so much time building the perfect crime that nobody could solve, that will hound police forever. And then when he's done that, and he's alone on the island, he's like, I think I did it, but somebody needs to know. This won't be any fun. I think it moves from a Moriarty to, like, you know, a a more, like, relatable character. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's, I think that's fair. Um, but his, the style of the letter that he writes is yeah. hilarious. Yeah. I, I almost picture him writing this, and I'll be very curious to see if you're in Charles Dance version of where they do this, of where he's barely able to sit still. He's just so energized yes. by what happened. It's like, oh, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. <laughs> yeah, I'll report back on what happens with Charles Dance in this, in this character, but... Um, I- I can picture Charles Dance, the, you know, disciplined judge. I can't picture Charles Dance, the giddy murderer. So, and then he also then commits his own suicide at the end of this. Yeah. Which gets so complicated in 
his professed order of murders and levels of guilt. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and this... yes, his Rube Goldberg followed by. <laughs> right. I didn't. Is... I didn't investigate the physics of the machine that he what? was talking about. But he's so proud of it. He's <laughs> so proud. He's like, clearly, they never would have seen through this. I'm going to recount every detail of how it worked. Yeah. Who notices uh, a handkerchief on the floor? But I mean, is, I mean, the fact that he's the last death is so interesting because there's a certain practicality to it. Because sure. he has to be right. the last one that's there. But he opens his recounting with, I picked their order of death based on... Yes. Yep. So he seems to be casting last judgment upon himself. That I'm a multiple murderer. I'm a person that has always had murderous thoughts. I invited all of these people here for the purpose of murdering them. I even killed my agent who coordinated all this for me. Yeah. Clearly, I am the most profoundly guilty of all. Mm -hmm. Though, in making that decision for himself, there's still a profound amount of ego. Yes. Right. Well, because he is the only one. Only I can judge me. Yes. And that that, that, we discussed the idea of having certain, uh, you know, deity comparisons there. There's a certain element of profound self-love to the point of godlihood that comes into that only I may judge. Mm -hmm. But, um... Well, he is the judge, after all. Indeed. <laughs> Man, it, it, During an executioner, apparently. Um, as one just kind of wrapping thing I just want to discuss, mm. no adaptation can really go into the psychology of these characters or their thoughts. At least never, I've never seen one that's even really even tried to do it. And I, I see how much of a loss that is rereading the actual original story itself. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. a full half of the story is spent in our characters' heads talking with themselves as they go into their own individual processing of their guilt, their fears, their crimes, and in some cases, their descent into madness. Yes. How, how much would you hate or love a Office-style uh, remake? <laughs> Where cut to the room? <laughs> they have the conversation in the room, God, and Lombard is, is giving the the Jim Halpert look to the camera. Yeah, <laughs> man, God, if we can if we can get the actor who played Dwight to be the murderer, that'd be great. Uh, man, and with even the room named so and so's head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it makes me realize just how many of the adaptations are just really a surface perspective into this story. Yeah. Because losing that kind of psychology and the sense of the madness, it just makes it so much harder to appreciate how artfully done this. Yeah. But uh, anything else anybody else wants to discuss or any final views? We've read Agatha Christie again. None of, I don't think any of us had read an Agatha Christie story in a long time. This in was, the end, that this was Natty a real discussed treat it. to be able yeah. to do this. How much it did you enjoy? Much a treat. I'm just now. I'm trying to see if there's a date on my. Uh... Washington Metro <laughs> oh, card, because when, then I can tell you. <laughs> when, when did you read it? When it was. Um, there, unfortunately, there isn't a date because it's a value card um, rather than, than a stamp card. Um, but but we could probably rope Terry into figuring out when it was. Triage because, this whole thing, yeah. <laughs> yep. well, and one last thought, just as references back to our last episodes. Mm. Is this a cozy mystery? Well, it's interesting because Agatha Christie, as we have said, grand dame of the cozy mystery, very much its foremother. But this is yeah. a different story for her. This is not yeah. her normal story. I think it's more her long-standing characters that are more the cozy mystery, uh, the uh, Ms. Marples mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, this has some of the trappings of like where it is to a certain extent but but 
it's not. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it is either. Um, I think the the characters, yes. The motivation, yes. The setting, yes. So a lot of the things, but the mm-hmm. ultimate sort of frame and resolution of it right. do not For get us to that investigation. Well, I also think that we. Uh, stumbled into cozy mysteries it was not a it was a choice of mystery the coziness was more like a oh that that that's like slight puddle is more like a deep pothole whoops but yes and, and in fairness to them saying that you know it's the agatha awards for cozy mystery she is famous for her cozy mysteries i mean she and i will say that i chose the agatha awards because i wanted a cozy mystery <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, if you if you look at all of her, you know, her cool Poirot stories, yes. those are the definition of cozy mystery. Mm-hmm. But this yeah. one, like you guys said, this has so many of the moving pieces of a cozy mystery, but put into the put put into the plot of a thriller. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's like she it's like she took all of her murderers from various cozy mysteries and dropped them on an island and let's see what happens. Oh, this is the yeah. <laughs> the, this uh, is a survivor. This, well, it's a d- very strange version of the Hunger Games, certainly. Yes. <laughs> um, which makes just such a fascinating read because cozy mysteries, I never feel under threat when I'm reading them the same way I do with this. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I I I know that I first read this. I might have read the play version first, which would have been a weird thing to do but i was about 10 when i read it and i actually remember being like very scared by the idea that these things were happening outside of anyone's control yes the powerlessness of it yes Uh, uh, and sarah i don't know about you but at least when i was in school and several of my friends who went to other schools they got the mouse trap and other plays yes uh, that might have been what i read it in i think that might have been it yes that's where i read it first was the play version Mm -hmm. um but yeah, I, I don't think this, as much as we were criticizing the idea that none of the rest were cozy mysteries, I don't think this is either. Well, this is how yeah, it fits it, into our theme. It wasn't supposed yeah. to be. It wasn't, wasn't su- supposed to be. Fair and, enough. And, that, and I think that factors into just how hard Agatha Christie found this to write, of where it may have been a, a bit of pushing of genre when it came to her, too. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that makes sense. So well, this has been an absolute thrill. A lot of fun. Yep. Um, uh, where else, <laughs> if people are looking for more thrills and possibly chills, where might they go, BJ? Um, they can go to mangumtalks.com where you can find all of our content as well as iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get podcasts. Uh, we have uh, this podcast as well as our podcast within podcast potting around, um, various other things, possibly some new content under the broader umbrella of Mangum Talks. Um, but we have some things that we need to do before we actually get that out and then i believe mangum talks tv is moving on to something new because they have completed chess and become grandmasters spencer what is that well having finished chess we've decided to go into law hopefully not resulting in a murder as in this story uh of where with lee thoroughly hooked on john grisham which i am no small amount of smug about uh we've decided (laughs) to start going through movie adaptations of john grisham's works we started with one of the best ones in terms of the rainmaker we're moving on to a time to kill and we'll probably go on to some far worse ones from there, which will be fun, too. <laughs> but hope Sounds people, like fun. Yep, hope people enjoy it. When we come back for this, what story did we agree we're doing next? We, we discussed a few, Frank, with the Christie. I think um, we, we? figured <laughs> out. <laughs> what, we, I think we talked about ones like a Witness to the Prosecution or An Appointment with Death or various lines along those lines, but we can reconvene and discuss and post separately yes. for our readers. I'm very happy to do any of those. I just do not remember this conversation. <laughs> we'll we'll, we'll discuss off camera and get back to y'all. But, um, 
about on brand as we can get to finish up. Yes. <laughs> uh, this was a delight, y'all. Looking forward to the next one. Bye, guys. Yep. Yeah.